Sabbath, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in God, the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptised. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, Do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man, they charge, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names of about your and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. Then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul. And Galileo showed no concern whatever. This is the word of the Lord. Well, Dr. William Leslie was a medical missionary to the Congo. His first trip was over 100 years ago, in 1893. But unfortunately, it didn't go very well. Two years into his mission work, he got really sick, really ill. He was hospitalized. Uh, when he gets better, he doesn't give up on mission work and ministry. He goes back to the Congo. But then it didn't go so well either. He has to survive uh, buffaloes uh, uh, charging at him and hurricanes. And in case you're wondering how dangerous could it be if buffaloes are charging you, just remember what happened to Mufasa in The Lion King. Uh, but Leslie doesn't give up in mission work. He perseveres through all these trials and, uh, and challenges. He manages to clear enough of the leopard-infested jungle to establish a mission station. Uh, from there, he travels from village to village in, uh, to evangelize, but that doesn't go so well either because he ends up having a relational fallout with the tribal leaders of the Congo. So after 17 years on the field, 17 years of his life devoted uh, to evangelism to the cannibals of the Congo, sharing his life and the gospel with them, the tribal leaders tell him to leave and never come back. So Leslie returns to the United States, is completely shattered, discouraged, 17 years, life in the Congo was for him a complete failure. For him, he felt like he made no impact for Christ, and nine years after returning, he dies. It's a tragic story, isn't it? So, such a discouragement that Dr. Leslie would sacrifice the comfort of life in the United States for the jungles of the Congo. He probably could have worked at the biggest and the best hospitals in the States, but instead he chose to operate in a makeshift mission house amongst the cannibals of the Congo. And what does he have to show for all of it? 
Nothing. And you can just imagine the glum faces of his friends and family who've been supporting him, praying for him, encouraging him all these years, and when he returns because of relational fallout, how discouraging would it have been for them as well? Have you ever felt that way? That you make sacrifices after sacrifice for the sake of the gospel? You take risks even to share the gospel, but you end up losing friends or losing a promotion. At the end of the day, you wonder, was it all for nothing? Was it worth it? Those times of sacrifice, those times of giving, those opportunities that you've missed out on because you put the gospel first, was it all worth it? Maybe you've done some door knocking and stranger evangelism, but it appears that no one's become a Christian through your sacrifice. Maybe you're the only Christian in your family and you've shared the gospel with those you love yet they're still not a Christian. Maybe your colleagues are at work make fun of Jesus and you stood up for Jesus. But now you find that it's a bit awkward. Well, the Apostle Paul is someone who knows discouragement. As we've seen over the past few weeks, he's been opposed literally everywhere he's been. And the number of people who hate him and oppose the gospel appear to be increasing in number as the more cities he goes to increases. So in his first missionary trip, in Acts chapters 13 and 14, he starts off well in Cyprus. But it, doesn't go, uh, uh, it, it isn't too long before he goes uh, pear-shaped and he's literally abused. That's the word that's used to describe what's happened to Paul. He's abused in Pisidian Antioch. When he's in Iconium, there's a plot to mistreat and stone him, and that actually happens when he's in Lystra. And now, if you know anything about stoning, they're not throwing pebbles. They're throwing rocks, stones, so as to kill you. And they only stop because they thought they had killed Paul. But he gets up and continues to preach. Then on his second missionary journey, beginning in Acts chapter 16, he ends up in Philippi, only to be flogged by the Roman soldiers and imprisoned. And then he goes to Thessalonica, and he's only there for three weeks because he's run out of the city. The Jews chase him out out of jealousy. So as you can imagine, uh, Paul on his ministry, on his mission trips, could be feeling exhausted and flattened and discouraged. And he could probably be wondering, is this all worth it? Is this what I signed up for? And if it was any of us, I'm sure we would have been ready to throw in the towel, to raise the white flag, to, to complain to Jesus and say, I've had it. I've had it, Jesus. I had a good life in Jerusalem. I was comfortable I enjoyed life. I had friends. But I set out to serve you, Jesus. You're the king of all creation. And what do I get? I'm abused and bullied. I'm stoned and beaten. I'm imprisoned and hated. I've had it. I mean, it would be understandable for anyone to complain to Jesus with such words, wouldn't it? After giving up everything to serve him, yet what you get is just abuse and and bullying and stoning and imprisonment. But as you know, Paul doesn't say these things. He doesn't say these things. He keeps persevering in ministry, even though he keeps finding himself being abused. And in today's passage, we're told that Paul arrives in a city called Corinth uh, in verse 1. The time is about 50 AD, about 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. 
And this city is very different to all the cities that he's been to so far. Archaeology tells us that this city uh, uh, was a great, enormous city. Uh, the city streets were lined with splendid buildings. It would have been crowded with Gentiles and Jews and people all across the Mediterranean. It was one of the largest cities of the Roman Empire at that time, where Athens, as we saw last week, was one of the greatest intellectual cities of that time. It had about 10,000 people living in Athens. But Corinth was very different. It was a commercial city, a commercial hub of about 750,000 people. It commanded the trade routes in all directions, north and south by land, east and west by sea. But just as it was famously known as a commercial city, it was also infamously known as an immoral city. The temple of Aphrodite in Corinth was one of the architectural wonders of the ancient world. And at one time, there were 10,000 temple prostitutes associated with the temple at one time. So as trades uh, in the marketplace took place by day, a different kind of trade in the streets of Corinth took place by night. It was such an immoral city that Corinth became a byword for sexual immorality. To be a Corinthian is to be an immoral person. And to Corinthianize, it was even made into a verb. To Corinthianize was to consort with a prostitute. And so before Paul was one of his greatest challenges yet. Yet he's just come from relentless persecution, relentless abuse. He's tired. He's discouraged. And in fact, when he goes to Corinth, he's actually all alone. Now, we don't have to guess how Paul felt when he landed at the doorsteps of Corinth, because we're actually told in his own words in his letter to Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3. He says this, I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling, in 1 Corinthians 2, 3. He was a city that had it all, and he was poor with weakness and fear. And at this point in his life and ministry, He's alone with little to no money in his coin bag. He's discouraged and afraid, and what does he need most? What would you need most if you were poor? That you, you, you've been sacrificing for Christ for all this time. You, you end up in this city, and you're alone with little money, with no bed to lay your head, and you're tired. What would you need most? Well, I think for Paul, he needed encouragement. And that's exactly what Jesus gives Paul, encouragement in four important ways. First, when Paul needed fellow Christians, he had Christians to prop him up, to encourage him. See, Jesus provides him with companionship. As someone who's all alone in a great big city, Paul could have become a homeless wanderer. Unlike the other cities he's been to, he didn't have any co-workers with him. Paul uh, had left Timothy and Silas in Berea to care for the young church. But also, unlike the other cities that he's been to before, in Corinth there were actually already some Christians, which was quite unusual. So verse 2, There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them. You see, in God's providence, Emperor Claudius, around 4950 AD, had evicted all the Jews from Rome. All the, all, all, the, all the Jews had to leave Rome, and so Aquila and Priscilla, being Jews themselves, 
had become Christians in Rome. And so when they were ordered to leave Rome, they settled in Corinth. And so when Paul arrives, they're ready to take him in. Now that, that's wonderful, isn't it? That's so encouraging that in God's sovereignty, even the persecution of Christians became a blessing to the Apostle Paul. Second, Paul didn't just come to Corinth alone. He also came with little money. He was running out of money, and again, in God's providence, Paul just happens to be in the same trade as Priscilla and Aquila. He was a tent maker, a a, a leather worker, and so were Aquila and Priscilla. In God's providence, they were in the same business. And so because Paul was running out of money, he didn't just live off them for free. He worked with them, verse 3. And because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. See, probably uh, Paul worked most likely six days a week. And on the seventh day, the, the, the Sabbath, he would have gone to the synagogues to preach. And so he'd earn his keep on six days, and on the seventh day, he preached the gospel free of charge. Verse 4, every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But notice what happens when Silas and Timothy join him in verse 14. They bring both good news about the Thessalonians and money from the churches in Macedonia, which means Timothy and Silas has been encouraging the Christians in Macedonia to give money so that they could fund Paul's ministry. And so when they come to Corinth, Paul no longer has to work. Paul can now preach full-time. And so he preaches full-time. You see, the financial support of the churches enabled the gospel to continue to go out. The sacrifice of Christians in other places enabled Paul's ministry to continue. That would have been a huge source of encouragement, wouldn't it? Verse 5, when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But you can imagine what happens to the Jews and how they felt. They were willing to tolerate Paul preaching one day a week, but not seven days a week. And so, verse 6, But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, see that language again, where Paul is being abused all the time, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent of it. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. You can always hear the frustration in Paul's words here, can't you? After all, he's human, right? And he's probably thinking, here we go again, in for another beating, in for another stoning. I'm going to be run out of this city again. But that's not actually what happens. Because Jesus encourages Paul again and provides him with another ministry, which is the third thing Jesus does for Paul. Even though Paul's ministry to the Jews have come to an end, Paul's ministry hasn't come to an end. Jesus gives him an alternative venue to preach and a new audience to serve. And it's literally next door. And so he moves from the synagogue next door to Justice's house. Verse 7. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Tidius Justice, a worship of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. Paul must surely be encouraged by now. He's no longer alone. He's got mates. He's got Christian companionship and friends through Aquila and Priscilla encouraging him. But now Silas and Timothy has also joined him. He's no longer in need uh, because Aquila and Priscilla gave him work. And when the Timothy and, and, and Silas came, the churches in Macedonia had sent money 
to support him. He's no longer preaching to hard hearts. The Jews might have rejected him and the gospel he preaches, but Justice has opened up his home for ministry. And even Crispus noticed that the synagogue leader becomes a Christian in his entire household. But if history has proven anything, if Crispus has now become a Christian, the leader of the synagogue, how would the Jews be feeling? Jealous. Jealous again. And as they see their synagogue dwindle in size and the church next door increase in size, jealousy will be running through their veins. And only take one or two of them to start another riot, to form another mob, to drive Paul out of the city. And so now in his 50s, Paul's probably bracing himself for another beating, another stoning, another stint in a Roman prison. And it's at this very moment, what does Jesus do? Jesus speaks to Paul in a vision. When he was most discouraged, he receives the most reassuring word from his Lord and Saviour. Verse 9, One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. Jesus tells Paul not to be afraid. Keep on preaching. And he gives three reasons in verse 10. Do you notice what those reasons are in verse 10? Jesus promises to be with Paul, that no one's going to attack and harm him, and that Jesus has many in the city. That would have been such an encouragement to Paul, wouldn't it? Jesus reassures Paul that his ministry is going to be different in this city. He might have been attacked and harmed in other cities and driven away, but not this one. He might have struggled to convert a few people in other cities, but not this one, because Jesus has many in this city. And we see Jesus keep his promise to Paul straight away. Because in verse 11, we're told that he stays in Corinth for 18 months, which is actually quite unusual. He lasted three weeks in Thessalonica, but he lasts 78 weeks in Corinth. He stays in Corinth for a very, very long time. He might have been imprisoned in Philippi, but no one touches a strain of hair of his in Corinth at all. So when Gallio, the new proconsul, arrives in verse 12, the Jews try to have Paul thrown into prison. But before Paul even utters a word to defend himself in verse 14, Gallio dismisses the complaint immediately in verse 15. So instead of Paul being beaten, notice what happens? The reverse happens. The troublemakers are, 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 are in trouble instead. The crowd turns on the synagogue leader, Sosthenes, and beat him up in verse 16. It, their goal is flipped around, and they're the ones who get into trouble. Now, it's truly remarkable, isn't it? The full force of Rome itself steps in to protect Paul. Paul didn't have to open his mouth, for Jesus was with him. For Jesus was protecting him, just as he promised. And because of that, Jesus saves many through Paul. If it wasn't enough that Jesus had already saved Christmas, the former leader of the synagogue. Who was the new leader of the synagogue who wanted to throw Paul in prison? His name was Sosthenes. And what happens to him? He ends up being a Christian and a leader. We know this because of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1 tells us, Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother Sosthenes. How, how remarkable is that? Sosthenes out of jealousy, wanted to imprison Paul. He was beaten up instead, and he ends up becoming a Christian 
and a co-author with Paul of 1 Corinthians. This is a timely reminder, isn't it? That ministry is tough. Evangelism is challenging. But Jesus is with us and he's for us. And he promises to save even the most unexpected, like Sosthenes. Well, 12 years ago in 2010, 84 years after Dr. Leslie left the jungles of Congo, Eric Ramsey led a team of Christians to the Congo. And what they found swept them off their feet. As the team travelled from village to village, they couldn't believe what they saw. They said this, When we got in there, we found a network of reproducing churches throughout the jungle. Each village had its own gospel choir, although they wouldn't call it that. They wrote their own songs and would have sing-offs from village to village. They had a network of church planting happening in Congo. In each of the eight villages scattered across 34 miles, they found a church. And even though generations had passed, the tribal people knew of Dr. Leslie. They had never met him, but they knew all about him. You see, Dr. Leslie believed that God had people in the jungles of the Congo. And so he went to preach there and spent 17 years reaching out to the cannibals. Struggle after struggle, he kept persevering. It was only when he had a relationship breakdown with the tribal leaders that he had to return home, completely discouraged, thinking that his ministry and his work had no effect. But little did he know, it had enormous effect. Because the gospel did go out and it didn't come back empty. His ministry wasn't in vain. His ministry led to the salvation of many cannibals. Friends, we don't know what our ministry will look like and what the result of that will be. We don't have to go to the Congo. We can, but we don't have to. Because I'm sure that just as God has many in the Congo, so Jesus had many in Corinth 2,000 years ago. So Jesus has many in the great city of Melbourne as well. Maybe they're on your street. Maybe they're in your class. Maybe they work with you. Maybe they're even in your own home. And even though Jesus hasn't given us a direct vision like he did Paul to encourage him, Jesus has certainly given us a great encouragement and promise before he ascended to heaven. So in Matthew 28, he told his disciples, and his words to them is to us too, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And what's Jesus' promise here? And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Just as Jesus was with Paul and the early church, Jesus is with us today. And we have been given the same privilege as Paul did to preach the gospel. The same privilege as Paul did to preach the same gospel. For we have the same promise that Jesus will be with us. And he wants us to make disciples of all nations. So let's not be discouraged if we don't see a lot happening. 
as we make sacrifice after sacrifice. Let's not be discouraged if we're finding evangelism difficult. Let's be reminded that Jesus is saving a people for himself. He's with us and we can do this. So let's get on board with Jesus and what he's doing in saving a people for himself. This can be as simple as inviting a friend to church or sharing the gospel over lunch with a friend at work. It can be as simple as giving someone a fresh start, a a book that explains the gospel, or encouraging them to come to Christianity Explored with you. Gospel ministry can take on many forms, and we see it in today's passage. And I know many of you have been like Aquila and Priscilla, because you've been a great friend to preachers and pastors when they've been most discouraged. And God's used you to prop them up, to encourage them, to help them spur on. Some of you have been like the Christians in Macedonia and you have given so generously so that people like myself can preach the gospel full time. So Some of you have been like Justice and you have offered up your home for discipleship team and evangelism and, and ministry. Gospel work is hard. Sometimes we preach and teach and share and nothing happens. But sometimes people become Christians. Either way, like Dr. Leslie... He will see the full extent of his sacrifice and the work of the gospel at the end of the age. When he sees all those Congolese and all those cannibals who once were cannibals bowing down before Jesus, what a glorious day, what a great encouragement that day would be for him. And that can be for us too. As we commit ourselves to the work of the gospel, like Aquila and Priscilla, like the Christians in Macedonia, like Justice, like the Apostle Paul. And so let's keep doing that together. Amen.